The Revolt of 2020 by Patrick Johnston. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Patrick Johnston. Read by Daniel Meyer. By kind permission of the author, this reading of The Revolt of 2020 is available for free distribution. Stay tuned at the end of this reading for more information and links to additional resources. Chapter 2. New York City, New York. Mohammad Rashad's patience was wearing thin as he watched the president's speech on television. He tapped his fingers against his desk rhythmically, breathing out prayers for vindication. When the cameras zoomed in on the unexpected commotion in the front of the auditorium after the speech, Rashad was hopeful that someone had assassinated the president. When the newscaster reported that the ruckus was only the protest of an anti-abortionist intruder, he sighed and sat back in his maroon leather chair. He was named after the great prophet Muhammad, who was the first with the vision to advance the cause of Allah by the sword. The prophet started out as a simple monotheistic street preacher, whose message was largely ignored by the masses. Only when he took up the sword did his numbers begin to swell. Muhammad hoped that one day soon the dream would rekindle in the hearts of thousands of the faithful. Then the world would finally come under the rule of Islam. That was his aim, make the world Muslim, or gain paradise trying. As a lion could sense the demise of the injured prey he circled, Muhammad Rashad could sense that America's doom was nearing. There was unrest in America. He could sense it like nausea before the vomiting. The Yihad warriors were all in the right place, and the time was approaching when they would finally destroy the great Satan with a final wave of terror. Mohammed Rashad picked up his phone and dialed 16 numbers. The phone rang once, and then Mohammed hung up. He dialed it again. It rang twice, and then he hung up. He waited ten seconds, called again, and then he hung up on the sixth ring. He called once more, and then hung up on the first ring. 63-year-old Abdul was reading the New York Post at Bobby's Best Wings and Rings restaurant, which he managed in Manhattan. He always stayed in his office from noon to 1 p.m. six days a week, as he was instructed to do. His personal line rarely rang at that hour, and he never answered it on the first ring. When the phone did not ring the second time, he stopped reading and looked up at the phone with a furrowed brow. His grip tightened on the newspaper he held open on his lap. It had been 11 years since he had memorized the code, but he meditated upon those numbers every day during his prayers toward Mecca. It rang again, twice, and then the caller hung up again. He put the paper down and grabbed his address book off the top shelf. The next ring would be informative. Ten seconds later, it rang again six times. Six times, thought Abdul. Mohammed Rashad, why are you in such a hurry, my brother? Abdul's hands trembled slightly as he opened the address book to the page marked U. He paused and glanced at the phone. The number of rings of the final call would be the most informative part of the code. It would ring from one to twelve times giving him the important information he would need to proceed. A moment later, the phone rang once, and then no more. Good, thought Abdul. Very good, he said aloud. Abdul picked up the phone and prepared to make a phone call when he noticed the television, which was on a news station that was reporting on the National Reproductive Rights Convention, suddenly went black. Then an unprepared newsman flashed up on the screen and stuttered that something tragic just happened at the Columbus Civic Center. With his eyes still fastened to the television, Abdul picked up the phone and dialed the familiar number. Underline advertising, may I help you? Abdul was careful not to interrupt the secretary's introduction and to speak slowly and deliberately. May I speak to Kevin, please? Just a moment. A few seconds later, Kevin picked up. Yeah, came the raspy voice. Abdul Abrahim here, he said in his thick-tongued Arabic accent. Will you send out A912 to my customer list? We're in a fluster around here with what's happening in Columbus, Ohio right now. Are you watching it? Abdul ignored the question and slowly restated his request more emphatically. A as in Alpha 912. Um, okay, let me get something to write on. Okay, I got it. We'll do it. 
Read it back to me. A912, you're set. We'll bill your account. Actually, in my file you will see an envelope labeled for Abdul. In it is a money order for the advertisement. Take that for payment. Whatever's extra is your tip for efficiency. A receipt is not necessary. I have it recorded already. Okay. Kevin pulled out the file and began to flip through the documents. Here it is. He pulled out the envelope and began to open it. When will it go out? Thursday. If it's later than Friday, I will demand a refund. It'll go out Thursday. Thank you. He hung up the phone and could finally pay closer heed to what had distracted him during the entire conversation. His eyes never left the television screen as he watched the smoking ruins of the Civic Center in Columbus, Ohio. He prayed silently for the success of his brothers in the faith, but he was bewildered at the thought of who could be stealing his thunder. Columbus, Ohio At the police officer's urging, Mitch Payne and his wife followed the officer to a squad car one block away. The professor was making the case that the protesters with the objectionable signs should be charged with a hate crime. The officer shook his head. I don't think that meets the criteria. The professor's wife pulled on his arm. We're missing the president's speech, please. Payne snapped his head around and glanced at his wife angrily. Shh! He leaned near to her and whispered, Those protesters are probably going to file a case against me. If I don't file first, we'll be in trouble later. The officer opened the door to his squad car and picked up his clipboard and pen. Now tell me again what happened. Before the professor could tell his elaborate story, the sky cracked and the ground began to tremble beneath their feet. It sounded like a volcano erupted out of the ground one block away. What was that? They each ducked on the sidewalk as if the building beside them was going to collapse. Car alarms and sirens went off all around them. Payne looked back toward the Civic Center and gasped. Traffic in the two-lane road beside them screeched to a halt. Mitch Payne slowly walked to the center of the road and he saw billows of white smoke ascending into the sky. As he beheld the catastrophe unfold before his eyes, somehow, deep down inside, he knew that a red carpet was being unrolled before his feet. Washington, D.C. Vice President Margaret Brighton was in a cabinet meeting discussing the implementation of the President's Justice for All initiative. Also present were several cabinet members, influential czars, and congressional leaders. President Fitzgerald had invited several liberal congressional leaders into his early cabinet meetings, and the tradition became established. The VP was pleading Fitzgerald's case for his Justice for All initiative. The President wants to stop the ideology before it becomes destructive. She was a very authoritative 49-year-old woman who carried herself more like the queen of an empire than the vice president of a democratic republic. She had shoulder-length, sandy-brown hair and wore a red pants suit that covered her curveless, wiry frame like drapes cover a window. She seemed rather out of place in a room full of men and women in dark suits. You fight an ideology with another ideology, commented the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Todd Hamilton, and not with brute government force. Making martyrs of anti-choice fanatics and homophobes will only serve to give them a platform for their nonsense and Hasn't it always been understood that a man can't cry fire in a crowded theater? Brighton's disrespectful interruption surprised the president's cabinet. If speech infringes on another's right to peace and security, it should be penalized. You must know that this Republican-dominated Supreme Court will reject the legislation before it hits the papers, commented the youngest, richest, and most handsome of the senators, Tom Tyndale from New York. Why are religious extremists in state houses the only ones courageous enough to defy judicial decisions with which they disagree, someone wondered aloud. And what does President Fitzgerald propose that we tell the people about what happened to their First Amendment rights? We have things under control in the court, the President's Chief of Staff, Dina Halucci, assured them. Don't worry about that. She was a stately woman with short, slick, dark hair and a face sculpted by a gifted plastic surgeon, which made her appear ten years younger than her age. As evidenced by their grimaces and mumblings, most of those in the room weren't convinced by Halucci's assurance that the courts would support the President's bill. Dina's right, Vice President Brighton nodded confidently. We've been incarcerating people for hate speech crimes for years. 
a congressman balked as he tapped on the stack of papers that comprised the initiative. This'll get ruled unconstitutional five to four, Madam Vice President, and you know it. Margaret Brighton sighed, wondering how much she should reveal. Actually, I can speak with confidence that it'll be four to five. The High Court is on our side. She intended for her smile to emanate confidence, to ease the skepticism in the room, but most of the cabinet read it as naivete. Will President Fitzgerald rest content with a failed attempt with this bill in exchange for a more likely victory with another? Senator Tyndale asked. We can use this as leverage to broker a deal with reluctant colleagues to pursue other worthy goals. I'm afraid, he paused to scratch his template, I'm afraid that's the best we can hope for. The VP shook her head as if she could not possibly embrace that defeatist mindset. She looked around the room, studying the faces of those around her. There is a cause here worth fighting for. We must stop these religious extremists. The cabinet was taken aback by the VP's reluctance to accept the inevitable congressional compromise. She obviously had some personal investment in this bill. They were just now growing accustomed to the uncompromising take-no-prisoners-and-lose-no-battles personality of Margaret Brighton. The Attorney General, Victor Myers, interjected, You must know that this legislation is unenforceable. He had directed the Justice Department for two administrations. He knew the difference between practical, enforceable legislation and impractical, political lip-wagging that was meant just to satisfy a constituency without ever intending to accomplish anything. He found it hard to believe that the administration was actually taking this piece of legislation seriously. Getting offended by an anti-abortion activist or a Bible-thumping homophobe telling you you're hell-bound doesn't make you a victim of a crime, and it doesn't justify the cost of prosecuting the freaks, nor, frankly, is it worth the sacrifice of personal liberties. Brighton clenched her fists and articulated her response slowly. When someone is planning to bomb a building, you don't wait until he does it and then arrest him. That would not be very good investigative work now, would it? You discover what the hate monger says and writes, and then you arrest him before he detonates the bomb. No, before he even buys the materials to make the bomb. Madam Vice President, haven't hate speech statutes always been local or statewide? This was Danny Connor, a young economics prodigy who was a close friend of President Fitzgerald when he was governor of Wisconsin. Do we really want to federalize hate speech statutes? What kind of precedent does that set for future administrations? Is a future anti-choice president going to criminalize pro-choice speech if a pro-life activist feels threatened? How can we make the feelings of a supposed victim the basis of a federal investigation? The VP appeared intimidated by the probing questions of the most intelligent and underestimated member of the president's cabinet. If someone feels threatened by another's hateful or threatening speech, then their rights are being violated. Feels threatened? What if he feels paranoid? Some at the table fought off a laugh at Danny's witty comments. What if a pro-lifer feels threatened? This legislation is so blatantly impractical that it's a waste of political capital. Brighton cleared her throat and appeared irritated by all the resistance in the room. We have a crisis of violence against reproductive health care personnel. That is the point of contention in our society right now. We meet the need that exists. No one's been bombing pro-life protesters. Would you have stopped slavery if you had the opportunity, or would you have been status quo bureaucrats? Slavery, yes, Victor Myers asserted. Bigotry, no. In America, a man is as free to be a bigot as he is to be stupid. Not in my America, the vice president quipped. How come we have not heard of this directly from the president? He asked me to make his case during his announcement of this legislation at the Reproductive Rights Convention. Danny Connor rolled his eyes and whispered to the man beside him. They don't want our input, they just want our support. Having overheard the snippy comment from Connor, the president raised her voice. Please, Mr. Connor! She paused to regain her composure and asked calmly, Are you going to support the president, or are you going to fight him? She had faithfully delivered the president's mail just as she was instructed, though she did so with more tenacity and less tact than he would have. She had informed them that compromise was out of the picture just as she was instructed. They were either going to fight the president on this or fall in line. She glanced from face to face, but found few sympathetic countenances. 
Speaker of the House moderate, Republican Troy McAvery, had been perusing the pages of the bill for much of the discussion. Madam Vice President, I think one of two routes is most expedient here. You and President Fitzgerald need to either put this fat stack of papers back into your file and save it for another generation, when you are assured the public and their representatives will stand behind you. Or you can stubbornly push this idealistic heap through Congress and rest content with a half-measure version of it, without significant sanction, if, he pontificated, putting his finger into the air, if you are lucky. He tossed the packet of papers into the middle of the table and it fell with a thump. That is the best you're going to get with this Congress, and that's pretty good. Brighton stared at McAvery and tightened her lips, searching for the magic words that would change everybody's mind and make them support the initiative. At this point, a young secretary burst into the room with a nervous grimace and exclaimed, Madam Vice President, please, an urgent call. What is it, Sandra? It's an important message from the Secret Service. Put it on the speaker. They are requesting a private discussion. She sighed heavily. I'll take it in the next room. Brighton excused herself and walked quickly out of the room. She hastily picked up the phone. What's the problem? Madam Vice President, this is Dick O'Malley with the Secret Service. His voice was rapid and anxious. There has been an explosion at the Civic Center in Columbus where the President was speaking. Oh my, the VP gasped and covered her mouth with her free hand. Is he all right? We're not hopeful at this point. All Secret Service personnel in his vicinity are unreachable. It was a devastating explosion. Brighton thought she heard emotion swell up in O'Malley's voice. It has completely destroyed the Civic Center during the President's televised speech. Whatever has not been obliterated is on fire as we speak. Oh no, please, no. A lump began to rise in the VP's throat. I'll get back in touch with you in a few minutes, the agent assured her as he prepared to hang up. Wait, wait, does it look like foul play? Say again. Does it look like the building was destroyed by a terrorist's bomb? A very large one, Madam Vice President. A few of my men were dragging an African-American abortion protester out of the building just before the blast. He was screaming something at the President, something about destruction and judgment day. That's all I know, I gotta go. With a click, he was gone. The Vice President sat for a moment, stunned and speechless. She felt tears well up in her eyes, her mouth went dry, and her lips trembled. This changes everything. She walked slowly back into the room and tried not to stagger as the room appeared to spin. Gentlemen. Ladies, she whispered. All eyes were fixed on her fear-struck grimace. She stuttered the words as if she were forced to do so against her will. We have a, a national crisis. What is it, Madam Vice President? The civic center where the president was speaking was... She paused, put her hand up to her mouth, and hesitated. It was destroyed by a terrorist's bomb. What? Gasps filled the air. How? Is the president alive? The vice president ignored the volley of questions thrown at her, took a deep breath, and put her palms on the table. Her eyes were fixed on the stack of papers that lay haphazardly in the middle of the table. The cabinet members looked at each other in disbelief. Ms. Halucci's beeper went off, then cell phones of the director of the FBI and the U.S. Attorney General started vibrating almost simultaneously. You are dismissed. Find out what you can. We will convene again here in two hours. If you can't get here, link up online. She was referring to the encrypted video computer system that allowed them to communicate securely face-to-face -face over satellite from their laptop computers. The president's chief of staff patted Brighton's arm and with sincerity in her voice asked, Are you going to be all right? She nodded. Now this is personal. Thank you for listening to this reading from The Revolt of 2020. This chapter was read by Daniel Meyer and engineered by Park Leacock. The Revolt of 2020 and its sequels, The American Tyranny of 2020, and The Uncivil War of 2020, 
are available for purchase at docjohnstonnovels.com. That's docjohnstonnovels.com. O Lord, turn us back to you. Forgive our sins and heal our land.